0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the
1: podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 147. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, Paul and I discuss spatial archaeometry in the time of COVID-19. Let's
1: get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, last time I think I was complaining about how busy we were, and it hasn't really eased up, but it's uh, a little <laughs> less frantic now that we kind of know what kind of problems to expect, that we have uh, more in-person schooling going on. But yeah. I've got some great news for you. Oh, yeah? I'm recording right now on a Thursday, and uh, a few days ago, Monday morning, I got my COVID vaccine. Oh, nice. Number one. Yeah. Huh? Which one did you get? I got the Pfizer, yeah. And, um, All right. yeah, and it hasn't been bad. I mean, for me, it was really felt almost exactly like getting a tetanus booster. You know, mm-hmm. a couple of days of soreness in the arm, but nothing terrible. Not like I couldn't lift my arm up or anything like that. No fever, no chills, no headaches, none of the other uh, side effects that people have been talking about. So, I guess I got lucky. I mean, I definitely got lucky for getting the vaccine. That 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 makes me happy. For sure.
0: Yeah. And with the side effects, I mean, I mean, people react to the flu shot in different ways, too. Right. Some people actually get sick after they get the flu shot, you know, and and other people have hurt arms. I've never had any ramifications or side effects from the flu shot. So I imagine when I get my COVID vaccine, not that it's the same thing, but, you know, it's along the same lines. So maybe
1: it will be the same way. I don't know. Yeah, I'm the same. I've never had any kind of adverse reaction at all to the flu vaccine. Yeah. And I get that every year because, uh, you know, I work at a school. Well, yeah. Yeah. bunch of disease carriers
0: there. So, oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. So I am talking to you from, uh, it's just kind of cool uh, since we don't talk except for every two weeks when we record this podcast, but with my mobile lifestyle, we're always moving around. So from a tech standpoint, I just wanted to talk about this because we are currently in the Everglades National Park. The Gulf of Mexico is about five, 600 feet off to the south of me. Oh, cool. And, so we're super far south and the only network we get here is AT&T. <laughs> so mm-hmm. from a digital nomad perspective, we get just AT&T. And I always try to like to have like a uh, a backup plan, you know, like because we, mm-hmm. we have Sprint, Verizon and AT&T on board. And I always like to have at least two of those available in case something goes uh, completely haywire. Right. But I don't. So yeah. it's, uh, it's worked out so far though. It's the end of Thursday. We're leaving Saturday. I've got one more work day and really I only have about three hours worth of meetings in the morning tomorrow. I usually leave my Friday afternoons, uh, unscheduled. So that, uh, should work out. Uh, it's been, it's been decent. I was, I was hoping that the signal would be good enough and it, and it's worked out pretty well. So Great. the only other downside is we're, we're kind of boondocking here. Well, we're definitely boondocking here. There's no power, water mm-hmm. or sewer at these sites. So wow. we're going the whole week without topping off our fresh water and dumping mm-hmm our gray and black tanks and i think we're going to make that too there is a dump on site and a fresh water fill on site but you got to load up your whole coach and ping in your slides and your jacks and and go over there and do it it's a real pain in the ass so we are uh we were hoping to be able to go all week and it looks like we'll be able to do that we've been conserving pretty well but it's a nice challenge i think <laughs> so, yeah, fun little yeah.
1: Uh, gold set for yourself if you can do it, huh?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only thing that sucks is we can't run stuff. We haven't we have a generator, so we could run it all day if we wanted. But without the generator, we can't run much off the inverter. We got to run off the batteries, and you know you can run like you know a few things off the inverter, but not a lot, and it, it'll start taking the batteries down pretty quick, which is why we're getting a full solar install with a with a uh, inverter and converter upgrade in the end of April, which should allow us to run things like both our air conditioners. Refrigerator, microwave, all that simultaneously, off lithium battery power, and then charge everything with the sun off the eight thousand to sixteen hundred watt solar panels on the roof. So that should be pretty awesome. Yeah, cool upgrade. When when is the schedule? uh, hopefully the beginning of May I'm still trying to work it out with the company we're going to get it installed at Because they're pretty tight So hopefully at the beginning of May we will have that Which will be nice because we're going to be transiting across the American Southwest On our way to Nevada for the first week of June around that time And lots and lots of boondocking opportunities out there As long as I can find a cell signal I'll have no problem just you know, camping off grid And seeing how that works out Because we'll,
1: we'll be pretty autonomous at that point yeah. And in the Southwest, you shouldn't have any problem, Any real problem with getting... Uh, there, I did it again, right? You shouldn't have any real problem with getting plenty of sun. Yeah.
0: So speaking of pronunciation, Paul...
1: Yeah. Speaking of pronunciation, uh, last time I warned our listeners that I was uh, two beers in and uh, had opened a (laughs) bottle of wine when we started recording. And uh, that was because the day before was so stressful. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. after we finished recording, we were just having a little chit chat, you and me. And uh, and I mentioned to you that I listen, I make it a point to listen to every one of our recordings and uh, I self-assess and I try to use what I learned and hopefully get a little better. I think if you listen to the last couple of years since I've been the co-host here, I, I've gotten better. I mean, I still have my flubs. I still misspeak a lot. I, you know, that happens, but we um, all do just general stuff about like mic presence and how we interact and such, I think has gotten more fluid speaking of fluids. <laughs> <laughs> you know how bowling is really great with beer you have to like not do it too fast. You have to have the right amount of beer in your belly that you bowl well. But it's really easy to tip that over and to start bowling really poorly. Yeah, that, that's basically yeah. what I did with last with the last podcast. <laughs> and what I noticed when I was listening to it, I was like, uh, when I uh, toward the end when I was talking about uh, Claude levy Strauss, I combined his first and last names and repeatedly called him Klaus Levy Strauss. (laughs) I didn't even notice. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I noticed. I cringed because I was like, oh, this is out on the internet. People are going to hear this. Oh no. Oh well. uh, Learning experience, (laughs) I guess. Uh, But that's not the only thing that I mispronounced. Uh, But the other one I knew. And so the other one was, we were talking about that article in ours. And one of the, uh, one of the archeologists who was interviewed for it was, uh, was Stephen Wernke. And I said, I didn't know what his, how to pronounce his name, it was going to be Vernky or Wernky. Uh, I apologize that one way or the other, I knew I'd already mispronounced it. Uh, but he was kind enough actually to send us an email, so that's why I know his pronunciation. And I thought you wanted to make a little comment or two about it, right, Chris?
0: Yeah. So he sent us a really good email about just expanding on some of the things he said. And uh, first off, I made a point that it made the article made it sound like like Jennifer who who wrote the article made it sound like. Digital humanity, like archaeology was coming to digital humanities and things like that for the first time. Right. Mm -hmm. He kind of commented on that and said, yeah, we were we've been doing it since before it was cool, (laughs) which I thought was exactly right. We're just not very good about talking about it. But he did say a couple other things that they didn't really get into. And one of those was that they didn't get into very much was he said they're using. Historical aerial imagery generating massive high res orthomosaics enabling survey of landscapes from nearly a century ago. Now I've seen he said he's working with a collection from 1931 right now and the military mm-hmm. took pictures of lots of things with the high res cameras of the day. And they've done that lots and lots of times, right? I I read another article. Actually, it was in the article we're going to talk about here in a little bit about using U2 spy plane imagery, but none of that's declassified yet. So when it does get declassified, and it's from the 50s, that'll be an amazing resource for people. But I've seen mosaics put together, you know, photogrammetry from images that I've taken, from images others have taken. And that all totally makes sense to me. I never once thought about doing that with historical aerial imagery. Now, you're going to have probably some issues because it helps to have not only overlap of images, which you're definitely going to get with the historical imagery, unless they cropped the images to not have overlap, which would be a problem. But if you can get your hands on the uncropped versions with overlap, that's critical. And then... The other thing that usually really helps for depth is having like off angle pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Like where they're they're off by 45 degrees or something like that, which you're also probably not going to get right. But it's better than nothing. Right. I mean, I can't imagine seeing a 3D photogrammetric landscape of a 1931 series of historic aerial imagery photographs. That'd be super
1: cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, we've done a lot with like SRTM and such, but that's all modern. So the idea of being able to reconstruct the topography of something that's now been heavily modified and changed cities built up around it, uh, forests cut down, whatever else uh, is exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's time traveling.
0: It really is. In the email, he just mentioned some of the other things that they're doing with uh, some of the programs they actually talked about. And it's just, we need to get him on and we need to get Parker back on so they can talk about all the cool things that they're doing here. So. It's just a lot of really neat things. And this actually plays really well into our next topic. So today, we're going to talk about an article from, it's actually the uh, SAA's publication, Archaeological Record, from January. And we're going to link to that in the show notes. And it's called Spatial Archaeometry in the Time of COVID. So his, you know, Stephen's comment, like I said, directly plays into what I want to talk about here, because this article is essentially talking exactly about this thing is, what can you do when you can't go in the field? A lot of people think, well, archaeologists can't go in the field. They must not have a job, right? Now, mm-hmm. that might be true of some CRM archaeologists because there's a lot of people who make their career out of just field work. And when that dries up, well, you got to find something else to do. But there's a lot of people who have you know regular jobs, typically academics, and they can find other ways to get their work done. And to be quite honest, other ways that they probably wouldn't have time for otherwise, right? Because they're doing field work and then spending the next nine months analyzing and writing up the six weeks worth the field work they did over the summer. Cause that's just how it is. You collect so much data. That's what you end up doing. Well, this article is really aimed at discussing all of the, individual interesting things and all the data sets that we have available to us that people might not be thinking of that you can still do new and interesting things on by reanalyzing or looking at it in a different way or combining data sets and going from there. Is that kind of what you took from this as well, Yeah, Paul?
1: I took that this was a uh, kind of a high-level overview of some cool projects that have been done in the last couple of years, but with the emphasis of 2020, because they couldn't do field work, out of the uh, the CAST and the SPARC program, which um, CAST is a Center for Advanced Spatial Technologies. Uh, and that's at the University of Arkansas. And SPARC is a NSF program that uh, involves CAST and i'm still unclear exactly how they relate to each other <laughs> um, because it the, the the uh the the projects I discussed in this article are between cast spark dharma's spatial archaeometry lab SPARCLE, and, uh, sparkle and come on yeah. sparkle yeah sparkle That's <laughs> say yeah you think that they forced that uh that acronym i think they yeah. did absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah the programming software that we originally wrote back in the early 90s was compass uh computer com program for archaeological sites and survey
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's
1: it's really forced. (laughs) anyhow so uh (laughs) mostly university of glasgow so i'm not sure exactly how these all fit together except that it looks like spark is based at cast and all these Programs, all these uh, these projects that are discussed in the article are all done under the umbrella of uh, of Spark. Uh, is that what you got out of it? Uh, I think so. I mean, as the basic why they highlighted these ones. Anyhow, the, why they highlighted them, why they were all under this umbrella, I think is because they're all related to each other. But they're also taken as, as little like nuggets, nice little examples of what can be done with archival material with uh, with photogrammetry with drones, with all these different things that we have access to that when you can't actually get out and do regular field work, hey, you might want to try something like one of these. And so it's kind of it's a gazetteer, basically, of these different projects.
0: Yeah. And one of the first things they mentioned in the article is that with current social distancing requirements and remote work requirements, it just lends itself to this online research, right? I mean, I think people have been doing online research for a really long time as part of it, but maybe as a supplement or uh, like a side gig to what they were doing primarily with their field work just to kind of enhance what they're doing. But now online research has come to the forefront. And I think it's really shown us where and I think I've mentioned this before, but I think it's really shown us where a lot of our gaps in online research can be. You know, where, where are we missing Data sets? Where do we need more data? Where do we need more clarification or better ways to access some of the data? Which uh, I'll definitely talk about one of those here later on in the podcast that I noted. But yeah, I think it's just really highlighted a lot of those gaps. And I think this is a good place before we really get into some of these different places you can go to take our first break. And Come back on the other side and finish this discussion back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to ZENCASTR.com and use the code Archeotech. That's Archaeotech. That's A R C H A E O T E C H. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and core structure visit paleoimaging.com that's p-a-l-e-o imaging.com and look for the link in the show notes to this episode All right. Welcome back to Archaeotech 147, and we are in our second segment talking about spatial archaeometry in the time of COVID, an article from the January 2021 edition of the SA Archaeological Record. And essentially, this is a, as Paul said, a gazetteer or a list of things that you can do to remote work, basically look at remote data sets and do remote work while we're in this time where you can't do anything else, right? And mm-hmm. uh, another thing that was mentioned, I mentioned social distancing stuff because that's what they said in the article. But they also said international travel may remain off the table for for the time being. And international travel could stay off the table for a really long time because... Let, let's just assume we get our crap together in the next mm-hmm. six months and the United States gets OK. That doesn't mean we can freely travel to other countries. We might be able to freely travel to other countries, but we certainly might not be able to come back. I think the current administration is going to be extremely restrictive on traveling to COVID infested country com- countries. And coming back <laughs> and,
1: not, <laughs> and not being in some sort of government quarantine facility for two weeks. <laughs> well, right now, a lot of the other countries have been extremely leery of having Americans travel there because yeah. uh, we're a COVID-infested yeah. country.
0: <sighs>
1: right. Right. Yeah. So
0: that that's a concern, too. So anyway, there's a lot of reasons why looking at these aerial and satellite remote sensing data sets are are really good. And and as I mentioned before, integrating multiple data sets, which was one of the quotes I pulled out of the article. Mm-hmm. And and again, one of the first things they talked about was exactly what Stephen Wernke mentioned, which was pulling aerial photographs from the 20s and 30s and doing photogrammetry on these things to get a condition assessment. And I think I saw a couple pictures in the article where one was a uh, one was I believe a river and From the 30s and in the like 1950s to 70s, a lot of dams were put up and a lot of reservoirs were created and a lot of these places were just flooded and we may not have the best way to look at that stuff right of course we have these old historic photographs but putting together an orthomosaic of what these things looked like i mean in some cases whole historic towns were buried we might not be able to see some small historic sites but i know that i believe down in arizona and i think new mexico and places there were actually native american cliff dwelling sites in some of those reservoir cases that were actually underwater now as a result of these reservoirs filling up the river basins So Mm -hmm. this is a really great way to start taking a better look at that stuff. And I can't imagine the data set that's created off of these things and how long it would take to really pour through these in some sort of statistical
1: way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Amongst these different projects that they talked about, um, which ones really caught your eye?
0: Well, I think... That one for sure because I love historic aerial footage. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the ones that they mentioned a little later on was the Rising Above Project a Digital Storytelling Archive mm-hmm. website about Ro. I, I don't know how to pronounce this R O H W E R. Rower, Roher, Rower? Rower. I really don't know, know. but it was World II, World War Two Japanese American incarceration camp in Southeast um, Arkansas, and. This is one of the ones when you're mentioning during our break, there were some broken links and stuff in the article. And I think it's really that the links are broken. It's that the formatting is really off. Some of these sentences in the digital version are just like all run together with no spaces. And I think there's spaces in the links, which is causing them to actually not be real links. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's d-
1: spaces in the yeah. links. I found one dead link in here, but the uh, formatting, uh, I don't. Yeah. I'm going to be a jerk about this. I'm sorry, but but that's really sloppy. <laughs> You're talking about it digital is. technologies, yeah. and somebody somewhere in the chain here did not use their digital technologies properly. Maybe it was cut and paste stuff out of Word. Maybe somebody was doing the tab spacing or spacing instead of tabs. I'm not quite sure, but I a third of these uh, of these links have uh, have spaces in them. Actually, the very first link, web dot spaceordpress dot com. <laughs> Wordpress. Wordpress. I'm pretty sure there should be a W in there. But instead, now it's two links, both of which are broken. Um, That that was, you you know, it's always frustrating when you find broken links. To a certain extent, that's going to happen, right? You know, because you link to something out there on the web and then it moves, and suddenly you've got a dead link and that that's something that happens regularly and i'm used to dealing with uh, with helping teachers who are building out their classroom materials their, their their lesson plans and the like trying to figure out how to embed different documents or trying to figure out how to link out properly to different places and then Every you know every week we're helping somebody clean up some mess that they made mm-hmm. with these. But it just um, it, it was really unfortunate that this happened so much in this document. Actually, even in the list of authors, some of their names are run together. <laughs> oh, Vance Green, yeah. comma no space. Austin Chad Hill. Uh, you know, <laughs> just yeah. uh, there was there was probably this is uh, an editorial fault, but it, it was upsetting to see, and it was specifically upsetting because. On an article like this, it's not building an argument in and of itself. It's not like you start, here's our data, here's our interpretation, here's our conclusion. It's, here's a little vignette, here's a little vignette. And each one of those has links in them that are inviting you to go look at, you know, some project website or some products website or something. And I kept on clicking on those to find out more. And then I'd have to go and fix the link in my in the URL because it had a percent 20 in the middle of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well and i think actually especially given the fact that there was a percent 20 in it that's kind of the dead giveaway here because yeah. i think this i don't know when they started doing this I, I can't remember to be honest the last time i clicked on an article in, in archaeological record but they're using this digital magazine type view right where mm-hmm. they you can flip through it like pages there are some pretty cool features i've noticed because i i've been able to you know I was able to click on the article title when I was in like the magazine view and then it opened up in a separate thing. I could download the Mm -hmm. PDF, which I did a lot of really cool features in here, but I think whatever format, like they were probably told to submit the article in a certain format so that it would translate into this medium, but it just, the translation, something got lost, right? Something got messed up in that character translation and it went nuts. So I don't know where the link is broken in this chain, uh, metaphorically speaking, but it's, um, It's crazy. So, but speaking of links and things that are inaccessible. That's what I was mentioning about this Japanese uh, American incarceration camp website is when you go there, there's a lot of cool stuff, a lot of cool data on this website. But one of the things I, of course, wanted to see was a 3D walkthrough recreation of the internment camp because it no longer exists. And sorry, incarceration camp. I really need to get that right because they weren't interned. They were freaking incarcerated. And we need to acknowledge that. But uh hmm. So I went there and I was sorely disappointed when I finally got to the 3D walkthrough portion. And the you had to download a program. First off, rule number that's step number one broken, right? I shouldn't have to download anything. Mm -hmm. You can do this in a web interface. Talk to Lithodomos. We've interviewed them lots of times. They're doing this thing exactly right. So Mm -hmm. uh, Lithodomos VR out of Australia, but. I had you have to download a program and when I saw the Windows logo on the download link, I was like, oh well, wow. that puts me out. <laughs> so I hovered over it without downloading it. And I saw it was an exe file and I was like, yep, that's it. I'm done. I can't even yep. I can't even open that. Yeah. So so I wasn't able to actually do that, which I know that there's more Windows users than Mac users out there typically, but it still is a little short sighted to put that limitation on it. So that was a little disappointing. But it seems like I really was interested in this one of all the things we saw here with the possibility, with the with the exception of one other thing here. This was the one I was most excited about because I've always, well, this one in the discussion about virtual museums, because I've always said that museums are just, you know, there's such great repositories of data with such poor representation, right? Like just walking around these halls, you're seeing 5% of what they have. And you're seeing it in an incredibly uninformative way, right, in most cases. Some museums really do it well, but museums that just have display cases of artifacts may as well pack up and go home as far as I'm concerned. You're not doing anything, right, except except showing the world that artifacts are worth something because, look, you can't touch it. I can. And now when you find one out in the wild, you're going to keep it because this one was behind the glass case. There's no context. There's no, you know, ownership put on for the. Uh, For the people who actually created the artifact, there's no humanity put into it. It's just something in a glass case. So virtual museums are amazing. And the images I saw that were at least running across the website and the images from the article here of this ROWER, I really wish I knew how to pronounce that, ROWER Japanese American Incarceration Camp were amazing. And being able to walk around stuff like that, like in context, just seemed super cool. So I like that stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm going to actually back up just a step here. You were talking about the uh, Windows-only download that you had to to use (laughs) to see this. And one of the projects, one of the links that I did click on and got through and and was actually fascinated by was a project I've never heard of before. Technology, I guess, basically. Uh, It's called 3D Hop. uh, And we'll put the link Mm. in, though the link is also in the article. I believe it's one of the non-broken links. But basically, this is a way of embedding 3D images, just like what you're used to in Sketchfab, into Mm -hmm. web pages, but without any special, all you need is a a reasonably modern browser. So you don't have to have any special plugins to do so. You don't have to download any special software to do so. Um, They display images of a particular file format that scales well, right? So I don't know if Mm -hmm. uh, you remember the older days, maybe it's still done with GIS, but in the older days, you had the pyramids, right? So if you're zoomed way out, you'd get these fairly low resolution images and as they zoomed in they would substitute them out for for the linked images that were that were higher resolution so that way if you're zoomed out at the world view you didn't download a bazillion gigabytes of data <laughs> you just saw that world view and then as you zoomed in it just you know downloaded what you needed for that for the the view that you had open uh it seems like it's similar to that with this 3d model format that that Mm-hmm. Depending on the uh, the kind of device you're using to look at it, and also you know how zoomed in you are, it will serve up different levels of resolution and detail. Um, and so that's right. interesting. And and this project then has the uh, it's open source. You can download the, the code for it. You can embed it in your own website and such. But there, uh, as you dig in a little bit, there also is a um, there is a Windows only component to it, uh, which is a <laughs> converter. Right, so take something that takes uh, 3D objects in OBJ or PLY format, which are much more common formats, uh, and converts them to this quote. It's Nexus, NXS, I think, is the uh, the extension. But that's this particular mm-hmm. format that they use in here. I don't know if there are plans of making Mac and or Linux versions of this converter, but right. you don't need that converter unless you're generating the content. And I think that's a little. Less problematic than what you're talking about, where you actually want people to see the end result, right? This is yeah. for content creators, not sure. you know the, the, this converter program, this Windows only converter program. But anyhow, th- th- I just want to uh, to point out that one of the other projects in this article that's linked to uses a technology that is explicitly trying to avoid the problem of what you had run into, having to get the uh, the exe. Uh, the windows mm-hmm. only executable in order to see that the you know the project <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Super frustrating. I mean, that's that should be job number one for, you know, you end user facing like really public facing stuff is make it as accessible as possible. And man, you can run so much in a web browser these days with little to no plugins. Right. They're they're doing it all in a a highly accessible way where you don't need a special browser. You don't need a special operating system. You don't need to plug anything in. You don't need to do anything. You just run it. And uh, and it does it really well. Again, Lithonomous VR, I'll have to see if I can remember to link to that episode, but we talked to them again. Oh, you know what? We talked to them on the Archaeology Show most recently. I brought them on in December and we were talking about some of their public facing stuff and it's all web-based, all of it's web-based and uh, it's really cool. So I think one of the other projects I thought was really cool, uh, they didn't really talk much about what they're doing with it. Well, they did talk about some things, but the Boston Fingerprints Project and I was... Most interested in the words Boston fingerprints, but they actually mentioned some of the other analysis that this project is doing, just as a as an aside. But the Boston fingerprints project involves ceramics with visible handprints and fingerprints from the vessel surfaces uh, from two historical archaeological sites in Massachusetts, and they were excavated in the early mid 18, uh, 1980s Sorry, as part of Boston's Big Dig, isn't Big Dig like that huge tunnel that goes under Boston or something like that, passenger car tunnel or something like that? Is that what it is? Yeah. But I thought that was super cool. And they didn't mention anything about doing anything with the fingerprints, but I would imagine you could probably catalog those fingerprints and see who touched and handled things, you know, across the collection, and then maybe start to build a better picture of the site or at least a picture of how many people were making stuff because those fingerprints don't get applied after, you know, the thing is made. They're applied in the wet stage before it's fired. So, and, and they were probably utilitarian stuff too, right? Because you'd think they would well smooth that out (laughs) in post or something to get rid of the fingerprints although i think that's a still kind of a pretty cool thing
1: yeah that's all really cool i actually i also wanted to talk about another one of the products that gets mentioned in this article it's not actually one of the projects but again something that one of these projects relies upon uh that that was really cool but uh we're getting close to the break so why don't we take a break now and then when we come back i'll i'll discuss that a little more you may have heard my pitch for
0: membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com/shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com/shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show
1: hi welcome back to Archaeotech podcast episode number 147 today we're discussing an article called spatial archaeometry in the time of covid 19 and we're also you know going off topic a lot and so uh, at the end <laughs> of the last segment I was I was teasing that we we're gonna that I want to talk about a particular product that got mentioned in this article but as we' were talking off air during the break you told me a little story that reminded me of a great story, and this is related to the uh, to the Boston fingerprints. Right in 1995 in Yemen, we were excavating a temple, a little mud brick platform temple, and we were dismantling it to go down because it was built directly atop an earlier temple. I mean, hmm. like right using the, the the earlier temple walls were shaved down and used as a foundation for the later temple. Nice, but as we dismantled that. Later temple, the uh, the platform temple, it had these fairly large square bricks that were probably about fifteen centimeters on a side, uh, mud bricks that is, and the frogs that is the the holes in the middle of the bricks that are sometimes made in bricks to uh, to hold the mortar to hold the bricks together better, the frogs in each one of these bricks was somebody's handprint. Oh geez, so we had hundreds of handprints of the brick makers. That's awesome. In all these bricks. It was it was so cool. I mean, yeah. you, people talk about like when they handle an artifact or, you know, you hear this from coin collectors a lot of the time, they'll say like, oh, this makes me feel like I'm, you know, engaging with somebody in the past. And I know that feeling and I don't poo-poo that feeling, uh, but holy cow, I've never had it nearly so strong as when we pulled those, those uh, mud bricks apart and we could see that frog, that handprint of – the guy that made these um it, it was just yeah. a special thing i oh, have yeah, that's very off topic um but that's fine now <laughs> i'm going to go back to uh this is actually off topic because it's not a it's not a real thrust of the article but um one mm-hmm. of the linked technologies that gets talked about is something called MLID, which i've never heard of before uh and it's a company that makes what appears to be a really inexpensive highly accurate kind of consumer friendly uh, gns receiver gnss receiver so you know basically a gps receiver but with other uh with other technologies in there like lonas and so on and so i clicked through from the article this is another one of the non-broken links (laughs) and then (laughs) looked through and looked at some of their materials and watched their promotional video and wow i got really jazzed on this um the article that we read talks about the the receiver costing less than a thousand dollars. If you go to the website and you click the buy link, it's, it's $800 for one receiver. There's a little bit of sleight of hand here because uh, they talk about sub, they talk about centimeter level precision mm-hmm. and they talk about that a lot. And after a bit, you realize, Oh, wait a sec. If you want the really, you know, th- if you want the really good RTK centimeter level, you actually have to have two of these units. Oh, really? And uh, I don't know how accurate you're actually getting. you're getting the precision, right? So you're getting centi- yeah. centimeter level for precision. but assuming that you've got your your base station within the centimeter to the world, then your your roving unit is also going to be centimeter level to the world right And so that's really okay. cool so around this double the price that they put on the article it's not a $1000 if by the time you get the uh, the two receivers and a good tripod and a prism pole and whatever else you might need you're probably looking close to 1800 to $2000 but uh, regardless it's mm. still that that kind of precision that kind of accuracy at that kind of price is really cool and It works like so many of these things that you and I get jazzed about when we see them. It works in conjunction with your cell phone, with an app on your cell phone. Mm -hmm. So they're going around mapping and seeing the the position right there getting mapped real time on their cell phone. And then when they're done, they can export it through GeoJSON or any of a number of different file formats. I thought, oh my God, this just looks like GPS done right. It also looks like it totally, <laughs> totally kills my whole program I've been writing for years with the Total Station because I can't go that fast with the Total Station. And the Total Station yeah. takes two people to do and such. But uh, I don't know if you if you noticed even any mention of that in the article when you read it or if you clicked through to that. But, but this is something I'm going to want to explore.
0: No, I didn't click on that, but that sounds pretty cool. And, you know, it sounds pretty much right in line. I'm really curious about the needing two devices. I mean, the more... The more links you put in a in a chain of workflow for doing stuff, the the more that can break. So, you know, I don't like that too much, but I guess if it's worth it and
1: it, and it's effective, then, you know, why not give it a shot? Yeah, well, I guess it depends wh- where you are in the world. Right. So I always think of being out in the back of the beyond someplace deep in Yemen where I don't have access to a radio signal that I can use to uh, to, to, to calibrate myself to. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you're working in the U.S., you might well have one. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess so. So I guess it really depends on what your what your work environment is. Uh, in that case, you could probably get by with just the one unit, and then it's sub thousand dollars. You know, the unit and a prison pole, and away you go. Can't beat that. So,
0: shifting gears just a little bit, one of the things that I, of course, wanted to talk about. Paul I think you know what I'm going to say right now. We've already said Drink. the word once in this podcast. <laughs> they of course <laughs> to their credit mentioned drones for archaeology because to be honest, a lot mm-hmm. of discussions of technological approaches to archaeology and uh spatial data and all these kinds of things. Some people some people, unless they're specifically talking about drones, just leave it out as a discussion topic, right? But I was interested in what they actually said about drones. Uh, I mean, not only do they mention like historical drone data, and there is such thing as historical drone data at this point, because people have been using drones for, I mean, I would say 10 years in some cases to like consumer mm-hmm. grade drones it, for at least 10 years to do some of this stuff. And if those data sets are accessible, then that's fantastic. But one of the things they also mentioned was that you can probably still do this even in the time of COVID and satisfy social distancing regulations and things like that. Because I mean, a drone, if you're really going to do it safely, you really need two people out there, but they don't need to be standing next to each other, right? They can be standing apart from each other and, and not wearing a mask because you can have them stand at 20 feet away. Really wear masks and stuff when you're in the vehicle, if you're sharing a vehicle getting out there, but if you're going out to do some drone imagery of structures or landscapes or whatever the case may be, then just uh, you know put the drone up in the air and you've got your safety spotter to make sure that you don't back into or run into anything just physically and and to also have eyes on the drone when you're looking down at the camera or something like that. So that's a mm-hmm. it was a really cool of them to say that not just the obvious stuff of oh look cool drone footage and stuff like that but hey this could be a way for you to kind of do some field work while also adhering to federal and probably your school or employer's regulations for COVID-19, and also just the ethical concerns of not infecting someone else with a horrible disease. So, you know, right. it's pretty cool. They, I think they did a, it was well done, couple paragraphs just bringing this in.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, the, the article is uh, obviously focused on technological approaches which is why you and i are covering it here today but if it's if it's a matter of thinking about field work versus technological approaches to analyzing and processing data that the drones blur that line Mm -hmm. and well maybe push it a little further you know a lot of actual survey work doesn't involve standing right up next to somebody yeah maybe if you're doing shovel tests or something that has to be processed a little differently or you know that, that changes it a bit. Mm-hmm. But if you're just, you know, field walking, that can also be done with appropriate social distancing. In fact, it probably best is done with appropriate social distancing because I've never seen people walk, you know, five foot transects. of you?
0: Uh, Well, actually I have done five foot transects, uh, five foot explicitly. It's, it's funny you say that, but that's only in very rare circumstances when we're doing a, uh, you know, back in the Southeast when I worked there probably 10 years ago now, actually 11, 12 years mm-hmm. ago now, we would do like on this one project, I got to see all, if you you just want to break it down to three phases, if Tom King is listening, sorry, Tom, I know that you can't break everything down like this, but a lot of people break archaeology down into three phases. (laughs) Um, phase, Phase one, where you've got, Like wide interval shovel testing or survey, you know, thirty meter kind of stuff, twenty to thirty meter Mm -hmm. uh, interval, whether it's pedestrian survey or shovel testing, and then you've got the testing phase, phase two. Some people call it different things, but Mm -hmm. in generic terms, phase two, and that's usually close interval unit testing, like single one by one meter unit, or close interval shovel testing. And Mm -hmm. I've done both, including close interval pedestrian survey, in order to just really flag out and nail down a site. Because we we actually do that out in the west when we find a site on a. Thirty-meter survey. We gather up, and then we do close interval survey on the site to flag everything out, and then record the site. And of course, phase three is full-scale excavation.
1: Right. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I was, I, uh, I should have been more explicit. What I was thinking of was phase one survey.
0: <laughs> yes, phase one survey. But like I said, even on phase one survey back west, when we do find a site, we do gather up and you know, now I don't actually do it that way. I, I do sometimes, it, it depends on your method, but this is a good discussion to have from a technological standpoint because it can be done well and it can be done poorly. I prefer to have people stand maybe two, three feet apart, like a meter apart. And then we do, a, cause usually a cruise of four, mm-hmm. right? So we'll just start at the, whatever the initial contact point was like the artifact or thing that was the start. And we'll pick North and we'll walk until we don't find anything for 30 meters. And then we'll pivot on the outside person, mm-hmm. walk all the way back past that point until we don't find anything for 30 meters. And we'll do that on both sides until we've had a 30 meter buffer around the last discovered artifact on all four corners. Now, other people, I I prefer that method because I think it's better, but other people, and I hate this method, but to be honest, it's more COVID friendly, but they'll usually just have a center point of the first discovered artifact or cluster of artifacts and say, you take the Northwest, you take the Northeast, you take the Southeast and you take the Southwest quadrant and you just quadrant map it, right? You just do that. But I find that people just wander around there and there's no systematic discovery, which really irritates me. But it's more COVID-friendly, so you do what you got to do. Anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, the other problems with field work that you got to remember, too, including if you're going out to do a drone survey, you know, on the first day of a first session of a project, everybody's hyper aware of things and everybody's clean and the truck looks nice and all that stuff. But by the end of that first session, especially if you work in 10 days, by the end of that first session, pretty much most hygiene standards are kind of out the window a little bit almost literally and Mm -hmm. including you just start getting familiar with people and, you know, people stop wearing masks. If it's mask time, people, you know, stop dusting down and keeping the truck clean. There's a growing amount of trash in there, unless you're really good at keeping on top of it and good crew chiefs are good at keeping on top of it, but that stuff really starts to degrade fast. So I would, I would not to get off track too much, but I would watch that from a fieldwork standpoint, (laughs) because like this article is mentioning, there is some fieldwork that you can do, from a technological standpoint and technology really is helping us do this field work, right? Because otherwise we couldn't, we couldn't do it in this COVID time in a lot of cases, but you still right. have to really be careful and and be safe.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. I was just being a little uh, off the cuff in terms of, you know, where do we draw the yeah. line and where does the article sure. draw the line? In fact, but, uh, but yeah, the, the article is definitely tech, based. Uh, and again, ex- showing a whole bunch of case studies of work that was done in the very recent past that could be very easily done in the current and near future when you can't do other things because of COVID. And you know that's that's yeah. right there on the tin. They're, they're not hiding anything. They don't spring anything on us. But it's it's also nice to see the variety of different projects because that's the other thing that it really highlights. This is a wide range of different approaches, different technologies, different people doing things in different places for different reasons. But it all falls under this kind of umbrella of spatial archaeometry. You know, so it's archaeology and Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: Well, it's very interesting. I I think we can. I think we can start wrapping up with just a few comments here because, you know, going back to the title of this, this article, Spatial Arche- Spatial Archaeometry in the Time of COVID-19, uh, subtitled mm. Recent Research from CAST and the Spark Program. And I'll tell you what, I kind of just glossed over that until I just read that title again as I was sitting here looking at this because... It seemed to me like this was just a list of cool technologies that you could use to actually do some stuff in this time where you've got to work remotely and use the Internet Mm -hmm. and other resources. But Cast and the Spark program have been doing these all these things. Otherwise, they would have talked about it in that way. <laughs> so they've been they've been involved in either every single one of these things that they talk about here, or they've done every single one of the things that they talk about here, just given mm-hmm. the article title. So it's pretty cool, and they're doing some pretty awesome things. And I thought we should mention, because I didn't do it in the beginning, the authors of the article, because there's a list here. And I'm probably going to butcher some names, but I'm just going to mention them anyway. Carla Clem, Jesse Kasana. Jackson Cothran, Vance Green, Austin Chad Hill, Megan Castron, Fred Limp, who is a former president of the SAA, Angelia Payne, and Malcolm Williamson all helped put this article article together. So it's very well done. I would not blame any of the formatting issues on them. I think that was a matter of translating into the SAA system here because Mm -hmm. a group like that would have had their stuff together, so to speak, and, and submitted yeah. a, a decent article. So I, I'll blame it on the translation in that case, but that's on the SAA. Use all that money you got there from not doing a conference to, uh, you know, put something together that <laughs> actually looks good. Hey, Cause yeah, I'll tell I you what I'm attending. Uh, yeah. I'm attending the SAA conference virtually, but it still cost me over $300 to do that. So oh, wow. come on. Yeah. Seriously. Where's all that money going? So anyway, so any final thoughts from this, Paul, anything you think they should have covered? I mean, again, it was stuff that they did. So maybe they, they wouldn't have covered it. But anything that you think is a uh, lacking in our discussion of remote sensing or, or remote technolo- technologies people can use? Uh, well, no,
1: it just, again, it's something that we all discuss. And actually, I had mentioned this last episode when we were having a chit chat. I said it's about work done in Peru and work done in the Middle East, you know, that gets interrupted because of uh, of strife, you know, military strife is what I was talking about. And mm-hmm. we said, well, you know, maybe we're going to see a kind of a fluorescence like we sometimes do in other places of the world in archaeological publication and research of previously collected materials. And this article here, I think, does a nice job of of taking that kind of nascent idea that I was expressing and saying, yeah, here, here, guys, here's some ideas, a little more concrete. You could do this. You could do this. Here's the technology that somebody discussed. Here's the technology that somebody used. Here's the, you know, go, go now. I hope you found your, uh, your inspiration. Go out and, and do something <laughs> good with it. There you go. And
0: I'll just uh conclude here they they do in their conclusion section mention how the COVID-19 pandemic the conclusion of this remains uncertain, right? So you kind of have to prepare for another field season another 2021 field season of not being able to do field work of course submit your grants try to do your things but have a plan for doing something else and have a plan for doing that and you might actually just plan on doing something else right because you might need funding to access certain repositories you might still be able to fly and go somewhere and do some museum or uh you know some other research but Just plan on it. I think that's what they're saying is we don't know where things are going in the next six months or a year. So, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. That's basically all you can do. So, all right. Well, on that note, I think we'll call it right there. I'd love to get some of the authors of this on. If you're hearing this, please send us an email. Chris at ArchaeologyPodcastNetwork.com. You can find both Paul and I's Twitter handles and such on the show notes at archpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech. And... With that, I think we'll call it, and we'll come back next time with uh,
1: another fascinating discussion. And, uh, you know, even though I've got my shot, I'm still going to mask up, still going to wash my (laughs) hands, and you should too, (laughs) because we're not out of this yet, (laughs) even though the vaccine's finally getting out into people's arms. (laughs) We're not out of it yet. Plan for it to keep on going and plan for how we're going to get out of it, please. Thanks for listening to the architect podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Contact us at Chris at Network.com and Paul at Lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV
0: Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland and the Archaeology Podcast Network and was edited by Chris Webster.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.